98,000, the number of seats for public school students constructed by the New York City School Construction Authority between 2005 and 2018. That's more than two Yankee stadiums, and it's cost New Yorkers $9.1 billion. But guess what? It hasn't solved the problem. On this podcast, we look at school crowding and strategies to reduce it beyond build, baby, build. (laughs) Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. Thanks for joining us here for this episode, summer break from school, but what better time to discuss school seats, school strategies, and lots of things that go into budgeting around New York City schools. Very important topic, good discussion for the summertime. We've been on a little bit of a break since our last episode, slowing things down a little bit during the summer, but we've had some great recent episodes that you should check out if you missed them. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always check out both episodes of What's the Data Point and other work from Gotham Gazette and CBC at our respective websites. And if you have feedback for us, find us on Twitter. I'm at TweetBenMax. Maria's at Maria Doulis. And we want to hear anything you have to say. Keep it mostly positive. Yeah, uh, it was active budget season, <laughs> active legislative session. If you know, if there are things that you want us to unpack on future episodes, yes. let us know and we can we can put that on the, the calendar. And we've had a lot of great guests um, from plenty of folks here at CBC, but also obviously lots of city and state officials, both elected and appointed. If there's people that you'd like to hear a good in-depth conversation with that we haven't had on, let us know. We've got some good ideas in the hopper for August and into the fall, but we'd love to hear from you as well. So today's episode, we're joined by Riley Edwards, CBC Research Associate, who has written a new report on school crowding, school construction, how New York City can really wrap its arms around making sure that there's enough school seats for its students. Hi, Riley. Hi. How you doing? Good. Good. So let's jump right in. Um, Talk a little bit about how school crowding is measured. Yeah. So the DOE created a formula to measure school capacity to kind of standardize across all the different buildings in the city uh, that were built at different times in different ways. Uh, So the formula first sets aside spaces like the gym and the cafeteria that aren't for classroom use, and it accounts for a certain amount of administrative space like the principal's office. Um, And it excludes any rooms that are used by outside organizations or that are too small to be classrooms. And then with what's left over, There's a minimum square footage per student and a class size maximum, which differ by grade level. And once those are applied, you get to a building level total capacity. Okay, sounds complicated. (laughs) Do you, generally speaking, um, do you have a sense of if that's a good way to do it? I mean, (laughs) you have to measure it somehow. Um, You know, every building is a little bit different, uh, but this is the way that's been established. It has changed a little bit over time um, to align with city goals for reducing class sizes um, and getting rid of transportable classroom units, the trailer classrooms. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are no longer counted as capacity in the formula, which is one of the more recent changes. Right. So I think if we step back, you know, we just issued a report on this, which is kind of what we're unpacking here. But Riley has written about this in the past. Right. And the, citywide, there are more 
seats than there are students. Yeah. Very important first point. Yes. Yes. And what there is is a geographic mismatch between where the students are and go to school and where the seats are available. And the extent of that varies by, by grade level, by, you know, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools. So I think that's one important point. The second is, you know, this there's a formula for capacity. It's not perfect. Some might say it's more of, you know, art or science. So there were big mm-hmm. changes made to this formula when de Blasio came into office, responding to the point that how, the, how one way in which the city had been dealing with crowding in the past was these trailers or transportable units that would be outside schools and essentially enha- um, enhance the capacity and, you know, allow students to have classes so that the, the curricula could go on. So the decision was made um, at the start of the administration that those, you, you know, we don't want those anymore. It's time for those to go and that the, ref- the formula should reflect that. The formula has also been open to other kinds of criticism that I think it's not worth getting into. But for our analysis, we sort of take the formula as a given, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is one reason why if you're kind of looking at this vast construction that's happened over the period and you're saying, why didn't it make a dent? Well, one reason is we've changed the way we've measured. So uh-huh. the goalposts have kind of changed. Mm-hmm. So that being said. Well, and you hit on, on you know, sort of the key thesis of the report, which is building new schools is not necessarily the top strategy that should be used here. We, right. Let's come back to that in a moment. We talked a little bit about how um, crowding is measured and how how do schools become so crowded, at least where they are, which there's a lot of crowded schools, right? And even, as, even what Maria said, that there's more seats than students across the city. It's obviously a big, vast city. There's some serious pockets of overcrowding. Right. Right. And to go back for a second, the other thing is the the formula might standardize across buildings, but the way that that actually plays out by, to how many students are in a classroom or whether a, a school building feels crowded or not really depends on the decisions that are made at the building level by the principal about how to use the space. That there's all these kind of centralized assumptions about how much space will be devoted to different uses that really differ a lot on the ground. So this is the only way we have of measuring it, but how it plays out could be different. Um, But to your question about how schools become crowded, that really differs depending on the level of the school because that determines how students are assigned to different schools. At the elementary level, uh, schools are zoned. So most students attend their neighborhood school um, and there's kind of a boundary line drawn around that school and students within that zone attend that school. Uh, At the opposite end of the spectrum are high schools in New York City, which have a citywide admissions process. So students uh, put, I believe it's 12 high schools on their application ranked by preference, and then that all feeds into an algorithm and uh, high schools have certain admission criteria and then students are placed in schools across the city without those geographic boundaries that uh, govern elementary admissions. Now, elementary admissions, it sounds like then should be easier to predict, right? You're talking about populations in a geographic, you know, there's, it seems like there's less variable at play. It really depends how many five-year-old incoming kindergarten students you have in that small area in a given year. That, That can vary. You know, the, the DOE and the school construction authority have years of data and do to some extent know what to expect. But the other thing is populations may change faster than those boundaries. So you have some areas of the city where you have a zone school that has become crowded uh, and they haven't changed those boundaries in order to account for that. Right. And I guess on the flip side is when people are putting down all these preferences for high school, the DOE can sort of 
move students around a little more easily than if they're sort of stuck in their Right. It's the DOE that has control district. over making those decisions about mm-hmm. how many students are let into each school. Right. And, and to emphasize that point, you know, a fact in this report that I didn't know that I thought was very telling was that some of the most crowded high schools are actually the specialized schools, right? Mm-hmm. Because everyone wants to be there. And I don't think they'd say that crowding is impacting the educational experience negatively. Could be improved, right? Perhaps, you know, lessening the crowding would allow for, for certain changes. But you know, it, it's there's schools where people want to be, and that's what's what's doing crowding. And again, the crowding often means that there are more students in a space, but not beyond what's allowed by the teacher's contract, because that is really the hard cap on the class size. Right. At the point where all of the classrooms have hit the cap that's in the teacher's contract, then they institute a lottery for admissions. Um, and that, that happens a lot more rarely than schools going over 100% capacity. So you have a lot of buildings in the city that are over that 100% according to the capacity formula, but can still admit new students until they hit that UFT cap. And, and the high schools are so interesting in contrast with the elementary schools, because in the high schools, what's the utilization rate? It's about... Uh, in the high schools, 81. it's uh, 91%. 91%. So there's more seats and there's choice throughout the system. So you have the flexibility to move students throughout versus elementary schools, which are very localized and where we do have more of a crowding problem. Right. Citywide, that the elementary school space is 97% full, but there are more uh, crowded buildings at the elementary level. Okay, so what do we do about school overcrowding? I believe in your report, something like half of, almost half of the city's 1.1 million students go to overcrowded schools. Yes. So it's it's a problem. I mean, it's it's clearly a problem. Also, you know, the use of these trailers indicated there were serious problems at certain schools where they were putting in the trailers that are being phased out. I don't think anybody would disagree that that's not a good permanent solution. Um, so... This is a, a major problem. They've apparently the main strategy has been to try to build their way out of it. Right. That's been a major investment in the last several years and beyond to uh, to build new school buildings across the city. Uh, but there are a lot of challenges and flaws in that solution. Um, building new schools is slow. We looked at the data and found it takes about three and a half years to design and build a school, but that doesn't include finding the location for the school. And there's a lot of restrictions on how big of a site you need and where can it be located in order to be safe for for children and students. Um, so that is certainly a limit on how easy it is to do this. And then the other thing is when you're spending three and a half or four years creating a new school, the needs you have in that neighborhood might change. You might go from needing space for elementary students to needing space for middle school students who may need classrooms of a different size or different structure. So the amount of space that you end up with might not be exactly what you needed. The other thing I want to say about this is, you know, we, the last decade was an era era of extraordinary investment in capital in schools. What happened in the wake of CFE, in addition to a, to more state aid for, for school operations and teachers, was that the state gave the city more capital aid as well. So you saw the school construction program really just start to burgeon starting in 2007. So it was 
a lot of money, more than had ever been invested in a capital program. I think the SCA generally, you know, when it comes to other public sector entities that we may not mention here, um, you know, can sort of keep the ball moving and get things done and it is not too exorbitant on cost increases and such. So they do well managing, but it's still so much money, $9.1 billion, which you have to wonder about if, you know, they were able to bring on 98,000 seats and it barely made a dent in the problem you know, are we going to keep doing this? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we re be reinvesting that kind of money, you know, targeting the solution where it's really needed, where you have these dense pockets of persistent overcrowding through decades and where population is expected to grow, target the solution there instead of building more high schools where you have capacity or building in areas where you know um, it's not going to be a problem in the future. That money could be better spent on fixing schools, modernizing science labs, or even like reinvesting back into your operational budget and saying, we want to try these other things. So it's been really, really, really an extraordinary amount of money. So yeah. just to just to highlight that point, $9.1 billion spent to build our data point, almost 100,000 seats from 2005 to 2018. And now we're looking at a new city capital plan that is perpetuating the strategy, right? Right. 57,000 new seats in the new capital plan. And $8 billion or so. Yes. Um, so say a little bit more about, um, I mean, we talk, it's slow. There's obviously very high costs. Any other issues with using building? I mean, is the costs just keep rising. Uh, mm -hmm. The We compared the... Building Cost Index for New York City, which looks at a standardized combination of materials and labor, that's gone up 47% since 2005. Over the same period, the cost per square foot for new elementary school construction has gone up 122%. In the new capital plan, the cost per seat is $122,000. So as the cost keeps rising, it's more and more important to look at the alternative strategies to construction. All right, let's do that. Um, so... Your report is called, is called Cut Costs, Not Ribbons, Alternatives That Reduce School Overcrowding, and that's alternatives to building. Um, so what are the key alternative strategies that DOE should really, and it's not just DOE, of course, I mean, this has to really come down from the mayor, but DOE and the city um, should consider? Right. So there's three, you can group them into three main strategies. One is rezoning another is repurposing seats, and a third is changing admissions policies. So rezoning goes back to those elementary school boundary lines. Uh, you could redraw those more often. You could add more flexibility to the way students are allocated between zones. Typically, new zones are drawn only when a new building opens, and you have to carve out a zone for that new school out of the existing zones. There have been more cases recently where the DOE has pursued kind of proactive rezonings to balance enrollment between a crowded building and a, and a building that might be underutilized. And we'd like to see that happen more often. Uh, in terms of repurposing seats, there's a few different ways that that currently happens. The DOE does some resitings of schools, consolidations, changing grade levels, maybe changing a school that's grades five through eight to a six through eight school. And some of this is based on space considerations. Some of it is pursuing other goals. But what we looked at in terms of real opportunities to ease crowding are using uh, middle school space because that level of school is the least crowded compared to elementary schools and high schools and has, you know, significant space to play with in terms of giving capacity to 
both middle school students and elementary school students potentially, as well as administrative space, that there may be opportunities to consolidate some of that to, to share space potentially and repurpose administrative space into classrooms. Right, because there are a lot of buildings where there's multiple schools. And right. so and there's there's certainly some room for sharing some of those spaces. Yeah, and some happening. of that may be happening already. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It's hard to know that with the data that we have, but we do know that the capacity formula doesn't expect schools that share a building to also maybe share a copy room or a nurse's office, which then alleviates pressure on what could end up being classrooms instead. And just on the um, like grade truncations, um, how does that work? I mean, there's there'd be a projection that some of that could shift and, and, a, and a school that's five to eight could become six to eight because there just doesn't seem to be the same need there as somewhere else? Well, there's been a move over the last few years to standardize grade levels so that you have K through 5, 6 through 8, and 9 through 12. Uh, there are also lots of K through 8 and 6 through 12 schools in the city. So sometimes it's a case of shifting maybe an elementary school to extend into a K through 8 school, and that's phased in over time. Uh, so you see lots of different kinds of changes there, but they, they those changes are all based on projections that the DOE has about future enrollment and mm-hmm. make decisions based on that. And how do you change high school admissions policies? What, what? Yeah, so as Maria mentioned earlier, there is there are more seats than students at the high school level citywide, and the admissions decisions are in the DOE's hands when they allocate students to these different buildings based on their preferences. And school capacity, building capacity, could be brought into that process more than it currently is to limit the number of students admitted to certain schools in order to be more in line with the school capacity. And, you know, she brought up the fact that the specialized high schools, which are some of the most sought after schools in the city, are significantly over capacity. And so there are, you know, good reasons that students and families want to go to certain schools and maybe more students want to go to a school than the capacity says the building can contain. But if the principal's experience says that, you know, we really can teach more students than this effectively in this building. There maybe should be some discretion there so you can keep allowing more students into that building. Yeah. And I think. But that doesn't necessarily reduce overcrowding. It may reduce it from where it is now. Um, well, in, but what a, it, in another school. But or, what yeah, it recognizes yeah. is like the numbers don't tell the full story. And in some places, you may overcrowding may have a real negative impact. And in others, if you can work with the, you know, with administration and the principal and the, the leadership team at the school and determine, no, you know, we can rock at 115 percent and we, we feel comfortable here. And that lets us admit as many students as we possibly can, but still maintain the quality. Then everybody agrees that that's fine. Right. That building won't get, you know, classified as crowding. And that's where some of those decisions you know, discussions around shared space can also come in, right? Those are very individualized Right, right. There's a lots of things you can do at the building level to use your space more efficiently than maybe the capacity formula would expect you to that means that you can effectively teach more students. So in terms of the ability for some of these strategies to, to have an impact, to make a dent in the problem, um, the rezoning question. I mean, you know, as folks can probably tell, CBC takes these things and does cold, hard 
analysis for the most part, not taking into Oh, there's a lot of heart account. behind it, Ben. No, but I'm, 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 I'm referring more to the, um, the fraught, you know, political yes. dynamics of something like rezoning. But, um, but leaving that aside for now, um, what kind of impact can doing some new rezoning strategies have? Right. And this was a question we really wanted to know the answer to, because when you look at a map of crowded schools, a lot of them are often clustered together. And some areas of the the city, you have a lot of uh, crowded buildings near each other. Other areas, you have a lot of underutilized buildings near each other. But there are some places where you see those mixed together in close proximity. And those are the opportunities where shifting a boundary a little bit might actually be able to solve crowding at a building or at least alleviate it significantly. So so, so just in that instance, though, mm-hmm. that those lines, that would be more for elementary schools. Right. There are some zoned middle schools as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we focused um, on elementary schools because that's the the main way that students are assigned to elementary schools. And then in some instances, I would imagine those are, as we discussed with the specialized high school, I mean, those are reflective sometimes of desire of mm-hmm. parents and students to be at certain schools. And that's, of course, getting into a whole nother discussion right, that we won't have this time. But Yeah, I mean, they're Choice is a big factor in what schools students go to. And then there's policies that allow younger siblings to attend the same mm-hmm. school as their their older sibling or to stay in a school even after they move out of the, the zone. Um, so there's all sorts of impacts there. But in order to kind of illustrate the the scope of what might be possible, not to say, you know, you need to move this line over one block in, in this particular address um, for this exact school, but what we did was match, uh, we did an analysis that matched crowded buildings with uncrowded buildings within a mile at the elementary level and found that we could basically distribute 16,000 unused seats to alleviate crowding at those nearby crowded buildings, which was a pretty significant impact on the scale of crowding at elementary buildings. Interesting. Um, and you also looked at sort of the impact that some of the other strategies can have. So what are a couple of other key points there in terms of how these strategies could actually make a dent? Right. So I'd mentioned the middle school space because there's a big opportunity there. And our thinking was first, you'd want to use that to address seat need at middle school buildings. So if nearby there is another middle school building that has enrollment over capacity, uh, first you want to make any kind of changes you can in order to bring all of those middle school buildings uh, under 100% capacity. And we found that if you match middle school buildings that are within two miles of each other, you can get 2,000 seats that way that that address crowding at, at middle schools. And then with what's left over, you can potentially use that to alleviate elementary school crowding. You know, there's there's complications in that, but we already have a lot of buildings citywide that have both elementary students and middle school students in them, whether that's separate schools or a K through eight school. So this really isn't something that's unheard of. And, you know, you could do that either by extending a middle school to be a K through eight school or potentially consolidating middle schools and opening up enough space to start a new elementary school in that existing building. And we found with like a one mile limit on the space on the distance between a crowded building and an uncrowded building, the crowded building being the elementary school, you could open up 7,500 seats at middle schools to serve elementary school students. All right. So we're getting somewhere in terms of the impact that these strategies could have if you add 
the 16,000 you mentioned on the rezoning, a couple more thousand here, 7,500 there, um, you're getting you're getting some real numbers. Here. Right. It all adds up. There's no one silver bullet. You have to uh, pursue a lot of different strategies here. Right. And I think part of the thing is, you know, we should be thinking about these strategies simultaneously because there may be some areas where, yes, indeed, you should be building a new elementary school because the, you know, the crowding is that intense, not only at, you know, the school, that one school, but the 10 elementary schools around it. And it has been for 10 years and the, you know, population is projected to increase. So, okay, under those conditions, building a new school might make sense. But, the you know, all these strategies need to be considered in concert together, I think. And there, I think there's been a little timidness as you suggest, for political reasons often, about pursuing some of these operational changes a little bit more aggressively. And we're saying, no, that needs to be part of the discussion up front. And, you know, reliance on those strategies should come first and building should really be a last resort. One or two others you want to highlight in terms of the potential impact? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about administrative space and the capacity formula that sets the capacity for all of these buildings allocates up to eight rooms for every school, but doesn't take into account whether there's multiple schools in a building. So we think you could have a reasonable amount of space sharing at the administrative level, obviously not for something like your guidance counselor or your principal's office, but for things like your nurse's office, your copy room, things that could be easily shared between multiple schools. So if you assumed eight yeah, rooms- those copy rooms, though, those, those, <laughs> those get tricky. But anyway. Um, you know, there <laughs> yeah. might be some territorialness, but- Yes. Uh, Just get more machines and everything. Yeah. If you Just was- go digital, people. <laughs> oh, yes. Right. Right. Digital. Yeah. That's the real right. solution. Um but so if you assume eight rooms for administrative use for the first school in a building and six for each school after that, so you're you're sharing two mm-hmm. rooms there, um, we found 40 buildings that sh- that have multiple schools that use more administrative space than that. And if we look at the excess administrative space in those buildings and say, you know, maybe we can get half of that to be classrooms, that's 2,300 seats. That's, you know, that's significant, even though that's only in 40 buildings. Mm-hmm. All right. And then maybe on the high school admissions, um, is that something that you've measured a potential impact there or? Yeah. I mean, that really depends on this, the scope of how far you take that, that, you know, if you were to cap admissions at every high school based on only the capacity of the building, you could completely solve crowding at the high school level citywide. But, you know, there are other considerations. There's schools that more students want to go to than will fit under that capacity limit. So we do think there's, there should be some discretion there. But that at the high school level, you can pursue those other uh, strategies like repurposing administrative space. There's other space you can consider repurposing is uh, space in school buildings that's used by non-school organizations. There's some community-based organizations that are located in schools. Uh, the UFT, the teachers union, has some uh, rooms in school buildings dedicated to its use. And then the do- the DOE actually uses some school building space for central administration purposes and district administration purposes. And if all of those uses were partially moved out of school buildings, you would open up classroom space that you don't currently have available. So you have it basically that if these strategies are used and they have, you know, close to the impact you're outlining, you're almost cutting the um, the, the school seat need in, in half or not quite half, but you're knocking it down quite a bit in terms of what is identified as the school seat need that they're then building for, at least in their current plans. Right. Right. Uh, by our calculations, you can go from 
96,000 seat need, which is the number of, at, at crowded buildings, the number of enrolled students you have over your capacity. So currently it's 96,000. If you apply all of these strategies basically to their maximum, you could get that down to 36,000. So that's actually much more than a cut in half. Right. Okay. And so then you can save billions of dollars uh, you've outlined and everybody's happy. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, Everyone very happy. So, but one question I wanted to ask about the the notion, Maria, you just got at this is um, there are still instances where it makes sense to build some new school seats. Mm-hmm. Is is that how does that match with you know sort of when they rezone a neighborhood? Is that you know I mean I, you obviously in this report didn't really look at that, but I'm just curious if you have thoughts on that. Like you know sometimes like in East New York, the East New York rezoning, they expect a lot more people to move there. Part of the deal was build a new school. Yeah, so it's a really a case-by-case basis. I mean, Riley has looked more closely at some of the proposals, and I think, you know, the rezonings tend to happen when there is a new school opening. Um, I, You know, East New York, I think the first question I would ask is, what's the capacity look like now? Because if the schools there are underutilized, why do we need to build a new school? Right. Right. I know when That can often be sort of an incentive from the city to a local council member to go along with the rezoning, but that can be problematic. Yeah. I know when the DOE is planning for future construction, they do take into account things like population growth that's expected as well as planned building. And, you know, that can be tied up with neighborhood rezonings and when you're expecting a a big influx of people in the future. So that's all incorporated in their planning process. Um, But as Maria said, you really do need to look at what the needs are right now and how much how much that uh, will need to change in the future or not. All right. Any final thoughts, any, you know, sort of other uh, takeaways that people need to be thinking about as they consider, oh, there's an alternative to the eight, nine billion dollars the city is planning to spend on building um, many tens of thousands of new seats, Um, ways that that money should be repurposed or, you know, other sort of trade offs. Yeah, I mean, there's trade-offs with all of these things. If you are investing in building new school buildings, you're not investing that money in repairing the ones that you have. I think Maria mentioned science labs, air conditioning, all sorts of upgrades can be made there. And, you know, those are being pursued at the same time, but you're always making a decision about where you're allocating those funds. And then if you decided not to spend so much on the capital side, uh, you could spend less on debt service in your operating budget and allocate those funds to improving instruction in any number of ways that the city decided to. So, you know, it's it's really a question of priorities and thinking about all of your options when you're considering how to alleviate school crowding. The construction isn't the only option out there, that these other ones may be difficult to varying degrees, but that they should be considered uh, because they many of them are much less expensive or even close to free compared to building a new school building. And quicker, as you as you mentioned right at the top of the discussion. Um, but the city has passed this new capital plan. Right. But there's always room they're to adjust amended, it. They're amended every yeah. year. So yeah. it's not, you know, it's not out of the question. And there are several opportunities to give this a hard look and make adjustments in the current plan. And this report can potentially guide some of those uh, discussions and decisions. All right, Riley Edwards, Research Associate at CBC. Thanks very much for the report. Um, There's a lot more to chew on in the report, obviously, than we're able to get to in this conversation. Cut Costs, Not Ribbons is how it's titled. Find it on the CBC website. And uh, we'll be back. Thanks, Riley. Bye.